This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 268. Today we speak with Scott Wright about regeneration and redemptive history. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is episode number 268. My name is Camden Busey. I'm recording from Wheaton, Illinois. We have a great episode lined up for you. Let me introduce to you today our panel. We have first Jim Cassidy, who is pastor of Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringo's, New Jersey. Welcome back, Jim. It's great to have you on again. It's good to be here, as always, Camden. We're also very pleased to welcome back Carlton Wynn, who is an ordained PCA minister, but he's currently in full-time studies for a PhD. He's a PhD candidate at Westminster Theological Seminary in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Welcome back, Carlton. It's great to speak with you once again. Thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah, we're so uh, delighted to have you on. We're really looking forward to your insights. And we have with us for the very first time today uh, the Reverend Dr. Scott Wright, who is Senior Pastor of Redeemer PCA in Hudson, Ohio. Uh, he also is founded and teaches at the Heritage Study Center there, which is a group for homeschoolers. Uh, the Cuyahoga Valley Christian Academy, which is a high school, and also Malone University in Canton, Ohio. So he's taught in a number of different places, uh, but of course is... Uh, main load and his main responsibility there is at Redeemer PCA in Hudson. Uh, welcome to the program, Dr. Wright. It's great to speak with you. Oh, thank you, Camden. It's uh, a privilege to be with you. Uh, Scott has written a fantastic dissertation. It was uh, turned in and accepted in 1999. The title is Regeneration and Redemptive History. Uh, he wrote it at Westminster Theological Seminary. His advisor was uh, Dr. Richard B. Gaffin, Jr., and his second reader, Sinclair Ferguson. So he's not lacking for expertise in, in his advising. And I must say that it shows, because we have a great work in front of us, and uh, we're going to speak about an important subject, one that is, I think, no less important today than it has been when it was first written. So we'll trace redemptive history uh, and look at the re- at regeneration as it has developed um, throughout uh, the, the period. But first, we need to stop and see if there's any announcements or anything we need to mention before we get started. Jim, did you have anything lined up? Uh, no. Oh, I, I, I didn't. I probably should, but um, I, I don't know. It's that time of year. I should yeah. say that the, uh, I believe the Desiring God conference is going on. I believe it's a pastor's conference. I, I don't have it in front of me, but Jared Oliphant is up there in Minnesota. Uh, so you might uh, take a look online because by the time this airs, I'm sure many of the resources will be available online. And you can follow up there. Um, the springtime, there should be a number of things uh, moving forward. So you can visit us online at reformedforum.org for news and updates about what's coming up. And uh, as well as all the programs that we've been doing, we have a great number of interviews lined up, some good stuff this spring. And also, while you're on the website, I should mention, of course, that we encourage you to visit us online at reformedforum.org donate. And there you'll find a, a nice form. And if you uh, are able, we would encourage you to partner with us to help us to continue to produce and distribute all of our programs free of charge. Uh, we want to thank you so much for all of your support. Uh, 2012 was a big year. 
And uh, we're looking forward to a great number of uh, new projects and new resources coming out this year. So join us today. I want to thank everybody for their support of Reform Forum and this particular program, Christ the Center. Well, I must say, uh, I got to meet uh, Scott here um, on a trip when I moved from Pennsylvania uh, back to Illinois uh, to begin an internship here at Bethel Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Wheaton. And uh, I was pleased to stay uh, with a friend, and uh, that friend happens to be uh, uh, happens to worship at the Redeemer in Hudson, Ohio. I also found out that uh, Scott is brothers-in-law with Craig Troxell, the man that I'm uh, working with here at uh, at Bethel, and so we have a whole number of connections. And when I found out what he wrote his dissertation on, I said, "Oh man, we have to speak about this because it's right up our alley." Um, uh, a great piece of redemptive history and systematic theology, and also church history uh, that was done with Dr. Gaffin and Dr. Ferguson. Uh, Scott, could you just tell us a little bit about your studies in general, and um, just about your experience at Westminster studying with these guys, and and um, what led you to write about regeneration? Because I don't believe it was your first topic, was it? Uh, no, it it, uh, it was the um, focus that I had been hoping to address, but Actually, my connection with Dr. Gaffin goes back into my Gordon Conwell days. Oh, wow. He came and uh, did uh, a brief winter course, which many of us took, and I was introduced to his redemptive historical focus for the first time, and it just overwhelmed me. And so I said, if I ever have an opportunity, I'd love to study more closely with him, which I was given when I was allowed to come to Westminster. Mm -hmm. So coming to Westminster and sitting under Dr. Gaffin's teaching and being introduced closely to Voss and Ritterboss, of course, just really was um, a whole new experience for me, and that's why I wanted to pursue this particular topic. Yeah. It's important, especially as we try to navigate regeneration and think about how Old Testament saints may have been saved, how we're saved now with the, the new work and the, the, uh, the giving of the Spirit, how all those things come together. Is, is a subject that's difficult to understand. So we look forward to you unfolding this for us today. I do need to mention the first line in your dissertation says, great literary works are often possessed of memorable first lines. I thought that was an <laughs> apropos way to start. Um, but you set the stage with that. Um, but what what would you say are the big issues there? Um, I didn't mean to jump the gun uh, with a couple of them, but why is it important to study regeneration, not just in terms of systematic theology, but also biblical theology, as you look at it throughout Scripture? Why is that an important activity? Well, I think um, for several reasons, first of which is it seems to be prominent in Scripture, um, in the Old Testament as well as New, and in the Old, of course, looking with anticipation toward its great fulfillment. And some of the passages that I covered, uh, I think, do look ahead to that. And then in its fulfillment in the New Testament, uh, just a wonderful display of uh, divine grace in what he does in the believer and in the church. So just in terms of Scripture and its revelation, but also personally, uh, for me, being converted later in life, the whole doctrine of regeneration in my own personal experience was just tremendous. Mm -hmm. Uh, Trying to figure out what happened when I became a Christian, I didn't have any language or category in which to frame what was happening. And so it's been a wonderful experience for me over the last 30 years just to to find out what exactly God did in my own life. 
What type of issues might we run into um, in terms of systematic theology if we, if we neglect biblical theology? I, I've had some experience in the past with uh, some dispensational friends, for instance, and they always had difficulty trying to understand how an Old Testament saint might be saved. Uh, being Calvinists, right. they understood you know, the noetic effects of sin and total depravity but also had no way to understand how the Spirit might be at work in the Old Testament um, when the Spirit was given, for instance, you know, after Christ came and he sent his helper. Right. I think that's true. I think uh, there are many questions that I am asked in, in church where people give the indication that they don't believe the Old Testament saints were regenerate in the same way that we are. Hmm. So it's, it's important to explain that, yes, they were, but the proleptic experience that they have wow. prior to Christ, um, while the substance is the same, the perspective is totally different. And, and I think that's what the redemptive historical perspective brings in, that pre-Christ they're regenerate only because of what's going to happen, and post-death-resurrection we're regenerate because of what's been accomplished, and the perspective is radically new. Dr. Wright, could you please uh, give us, after being in the pastorate for a number of years, the typical way you think the average Christian thinks of the doctrine of regeneration, and drawing on some of the things you've just, the kind of orientation that you're trying to get us or the reader to understand regarding this doctrine? Sure. I think if I'm, if my experience is right, it, it seems to me that the typical believer, when he thinks of regeneration, uh, tends to see it simply as a work of, of God, a generic work of God inside the soul, which it, in one sense it is, but it leads him to focus largely upon the inward part, you know, his insides, what's, what's happening within him and him alone. And so that tends, to, um, that tends to make him think of his conversion simply in terms of uh, of, of the steps that he's taking uh, as a Christian, whereas I think, if I'm right in terms of the biblical revelation, what's happening in regeneration really is that the kingdom of God is advancing. These eschatological powers have invaded time and space, and we're now, because of the work of Christ and our union with him, enabled to participate in this grand eschatological new world that he's introduced. Mm-hmm. So it, it's sort of like, uh, in the end, I'll talk about um, preaching and, the, you know, Ordo Salutis preaching, Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation, tends to have something like a spiritual centripetal force, which directs the focus inward. Whereas this wonderful redemptive historical perspective, and especially with regeneration, has something like a spiritual centrifugal centrifugal force, which moves out, directs out, helps us to look at this grand drama and the things of Christ. I really appreciate that perspective, Dr. Wright. I'm, I'm drawing on your uh, your abstract here and your dissertation. I actually have to pulling it down from the shelf here in Westminster Library. There's not too much dust on it, I can assure you, but... Uh, you say very helpfully in summary form that regeneration should not just be understood through the lens of redemptive history, but regeneration is actually taught in Scripture, redemptive historically. Right. For it can only be thoroughly appreciated, you say, 
from that lens or perspective? Well, and I think that's what was, I guess it shouldn't be surprising to me, but as I looked at the various linchpin texts, so to speak, both in Old and New Testament, I was struck by just how redemptive historically qualified this teaching was in every text. They're all linked. They all link regeneration to the work of Christ. And I think typically, you know, because of the Synod of Dort as sort of a watershed event and the rise of Arminianism, the uh, the desire to combat a heresy has, in some respects, forced us to truncate the doctrine just to focus on the inception of, of new life. When in fact, the, the redemptive historical significance of it, and looking at it in relationship to Christ and his work and finished work, is really rich. And that's, I think that's the biggest thing for me, is that what we've done is not wrong. It's just, I think we've robbed ourselves of the richness. Mm-hmm. Now, you begin your dissertation uh, with an historical section on the doctrine of regeneration. You've already mentioned Dort, but... Uh, what were some of the main features of the doctrine of regeneration in um, early Swiss, Dutch, and British traditions, for instance? Well, Camden, you know, I went through and I looked basically at seven different areas or features uh, through those crown witnesses. Um, and uh, the scope, uh, looking at it historically, and it seemed to me that over time, with the early Swiss, for example, they would look at regeneration as a rather large concept dealing with the Christian life in general. Uh, as you're near Dort, sort of a transitional area uh, in the Dutch tradition, and then even on into the British tradition, we find it becoming more narrow um, with the, the start of new life, specifically. And again, that's because I think Arminianism, the rise of Arminianism. I look at the source Whereas early on in the historical tradition, it was the sovereign good pleasure of God and union with Christ, which tended to coalesce later into simply the sovereign good pleasure of God. And I think partly because uh, we wanted to emphasize divine monergism uh, to combat synergism. So this whole idea of union with Christ tended to go by the wayside. Mm. It could be difficult sometimes reading those old texts because we may assume that they mean by regeneration the same thing we mean now. Exactly, right. <laughs> and that was part of the problem at Dort because the uh, the ones that they were opposing were using orthodox language, but using it in a very different way. Hmm. Well, what gave rise to um, the Synod of Dort, and um, how did this pertain specifically to regeneration? Well, actually, it was, uh, you know, the the rise of Jacob Arminius and his teaching and the uh, the remonstrance that was formulated as they began to question um, the orthodox understanding of soteriology and uh, the whole idea of God's predestination. And with regeneration specifically, the idea that, um, you know, the will in man was not affected by the fall. And therefore, if the will is not affected, if sin hasn't tainted it, then all that's really necessary is a gentle advising or 
a preaching of the truth or a moral suasion to bring someone to a regenerate position. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, that's useful. And then they responded to that um, with, with a reformed position, really kind of where we find uh, tulip. Uh, We find it from the five canons of Dort, don't we? Exactly. From the canons there. Yeah. It's interesting. And irresistible grace. Mm -hmm. Oh yes. I'm glad you mentioned that. That is a significant issue. Um, because neither side rejected the idea that the spirit was involved in this work. It was right. a matter of of uh, you know the the sinner's relationship to the spirit and how how one might respond or reject that work. They would both say the spirit would produce faith. It's just that the one would say it's invincible, whereas the other would say, well, the the, the sinner can reject it. Scott, would you be able to, um, because I think we're getting a sense of exactly uh, where you're coming from here, many of us who are already very familiar with Dr. Gaffin's uh, work, perhaps especially, um, and most importantly, his his uh, his book on resurrection and redemption. Um, would you be? A, and as I'm looking through your dissertation here, I'm I'm seeing, of course, many references to Dr. Gaffin's work. Would you be able to tell us, um, share with us a little bit, um, what is Dr. Gaffin's contention in that book, and how has that influenced your thinking? And um, tell us just a little bit about how you work with his insights into the scriptures and uh, bring that to bear upon the doctrine of regeneration? Well, I think uh, that's a great question, and I think he was the one who really aroused within me a desire to look at the whole Historia Salutis emphasis that's found in Scripture. Um, And I think he brings that out tremendously in that book that you mentioned. Um, In his advising of me, looking at this doctrine in particular, because of my interest in the doctrine itself and my uh, longing to grasp what he grasped from Voss in Scripture, the Historia Salutis, I, I think it, it it's significant that he um, led me to see all the texts, as he did in that book, these texts in the book that I tried to write, to see them from the uh, redemptive historical perspective. Dr. Wright, uh, drawing on uh, Dr. Gaffin's work again, um, Dr. Gaffin has so championed the notion of union with Christ, and he's also discussed that in relation to the to the shift and the pivot point of the Synod of Dort. Could you explain uh, uh, your ending of the relationship between regeneration and union with Christ? Yeah, I think um, obviously before the Synod, that was uh, an area where it seemed to me the witnesses would identify the source of regeneration. Um, again, as I mentioned before at the Synod, it seemed to be, it was mentioned, but after that, the idea that God was sovereign in this whole work of regeneration seemed to be the desired emphasis. And so, stressing union with Christ was certainly not there after the Synod. And as Dr. Gaffin and I talked about this, that was one of the um, significant pieces of information that came from the historical research, that union with Christ, even later, was um, not really mentioned, and there was some confusion as it became more order salutis focused 
there was some confusion even in the order. Does justification come first? Does regeneration come first? A.A. A. Hodge had some questions uh, putting regeneration before justification, thinking that it should be the other way around and so forth. But if it's rooted in union with Christ, it, it solves some of that problem. Right, right. Union with Christ has always got to be, to put it in another way, maybe union with the Christ of redemptive history. Yeah, and of course we have to we have to connect that with faith. Uh, we're speaking of um, existential union. It's a union that we have by faith. Um, and then we ask, well, where does that faith come from, or how how do we receive it? How is it possible? And uh, we can start to see how some of these chips need to fall. Yeah, I love what uh, one of the old Puritans, John Flavel, says: the two bands of union, the band of the spirit and the band of faith. <laughs> yeah, that's really good. Could you explore or uh, expand for us um, some of the main issues of Historia Salutis and Ordo Salutis? Um, what are those terms referring to? Uh, can you explain for the listener and, and how might they relate to regeneration? Yes. Uh, well, uh, Historia Salutis, or the history of salvation, has to do with the unfolding of God's plan of redemption throughout history, kind of the grand drama and um, being unfolded epically or in different periods by covenant. So it's this, it's this objective, historic unfolding of the whole plan of salvation, the Historia Salutis. The Ordo Salutis uh, stands for the order of salvation, which is the actual application of redemption in the life of the individual. And uh, typically we have, you know, what's been called the sort of the chain of salvation. Um, and we follow this out in an order. Uh, the election of God, the effectual call or the regeneration in the believer, justification, adoption, sanctification, ultimately glorification. So that's the order that takes place in the individual life in terms of salvation. So as we look historically, this doctrine of regeneration has been <clears throat> defined, I think, more and more as history has gone on in terms of the order of, of uh, salvation. Yes. Where is it situated in the experience of the individual believer, and how does it work, and what is its significance? And I think that's the issue. You know, as I as I tried my best at looking at this, it it, it was it's hard to get away because um, it's so prominent and it's so important. I mean, the way we've worked with the doctrine is so important and helpful. But again, the riches that are available, I think, because of the historical significance or redemptive historical significance. Um, if we begin to look at it from a Historia Salutis perspective, I think our appreciation and the riches of it will will only increase. Now, um, Dr. Wright, as uh, you're unfolding the idea of um, uh, regeneration uh, understood in terms of Historia Salutis, uh, thinking in terms of the way in which the Bible is laid out from creation, fall, redemption, and perhaps most importantly of all, uh, eschatologically glorification. Um, the uh, the old Reformed theologian, particularly the Dutch Reformed theologians, used to talk a lot about the palingenesis, um, the, the the recreation of all things, um, which is uh, seemingly what redemption is driving towards, right? So it's not just a uh, a personal experience of the individual believer, but it's actually uh, regeneration is ultimately conceived in terms of 
um, uh, the recreation of of all things, right? The entirety of the cosmos. Um, right. Would you be able to talk a little bit about this idea of the palingenesis, uh, the recreation of all things? Some of the debates um, maybe you could address with regard to the precise nature of this palingenesis. Is it, it will there be a continuity between the old world and the new? Um, is it going to be a radical? Um, you know, heavenization, sort of speak, where everything becomes spiritualized. Uh, will there be concrete earth, as it were, and uh, tangible stuff? Uh, did, if you could just talk about that for a little while, I think it's the type of um, issue that is oftentimes missed in, uh, let's call it, Christian evangelical Protestant spiritualism, um, spirituality, uh, trying to understand exactly what is in view um, with the creation, recreation of all things. Right. Well, you know, that, that particular word, uh, Jim, is uh, Matthew 19.28. That was one of the linchpin texts when Jesus says to his disciples, uh, I say to you in the regeneration, uh, you're going to sit on the 12 thrones and judge 12 tribes. So, um, He's obviously referring to something eschatological because he's looking ahead and using that very word. Um, and I think the only other time it's used is in Titus 3, where Paul is talking about the renewal of the Spirit and the washing of regeneration and so forth. I'm not as uh, familiar with all of the debates regarding the future substance of the regeneration, and but I do know that there in terms of Matthew 19.28, as we look at that, it does cast an eschatological hue, as it were, over all of the teaching on regeneration that's done in the New Testament. It seems that Jesus, using that term, is setting the stage, so to speak, for what's going to be taking place in the writings of the, of the apostles. And I think that sort of informs the discussions of regeneration. For example, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and here again is probably the linchpin text that they've used to establish the doctrine of regeneration, because, of course, the Spirit sovereignly regenerates the individual. But as Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, building upon those texts in the Old Testament which looked forward to a palingenesia, a regeneration, he seems to suggest that, that this is something that's going to be uh, widespread, it's going to be corporate in nature. It's going to be fulfilling this great promise that the Israelites were told to look forward to in the coming age. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but in terms of that particular word in Matthew 28, that, that, that was striking to me. Doc, given this, this wonderful emphasis on the future cosmic, uh, corporate even, uh, regeneration of all things, could you help describe for our listeners how we might preserve the eschatological character of regeneration while at the same time handing uh, the nature of Old Testament salvation in the life of an individual Israelite? And if I could, I'd like to read just a quick quote uh, from your dissertation uh, as a launch pad for you. Uh, this comes toward the end. You write, while both Old Testament and New Testament believers, the same personal experience of regeneration, so that there is experiential continuity between the Testaments, yet from the perspective of redemptive history, 
the regeneration of New Testament believers is radically different from that of Old Testament believers. Could you walk us through calling the experiential continuity between Old Testament saint, New Testament saint, and the radical difference that exists between the two? Sure. Um, as I understand it, Colton, the the substance, the personal experience that every believer from Adam until the end is virtually the same in terms of its substance. We, we're all dead in sin. We all uh, are helpless, and we need that that otherworldly power of the Holy Spirit to bring us to new life. So in terms of the essence of what's going on, it's the same. Uh, you know, Abraham and Moses and David and Samuel were all regenerated the same way that we are. But in another sense, in terms of a redemptive historical sense, there's a radical difference. And one of the um, analogies that I use in terms of a biblical text would be that place where Jesus says that John the Baptist is the greatest among women. Ethically, uh, prophetically, he's the greatest in the Old Testament, and yet the least believer, the weakest, perhaps even the youngest believer, is greater than John. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, he doesn't mean that the weakest and the least believer is ethically superior to John. He simply means, I think, that from a New Covenant perspective, he is in such an exalted position and privilege that John's position and privilege paled in comparison. So I think in terms of regeneration, the fact that we're now participating in the, the already come messianic kingdom, um, you know, as Hebrew says, we're tasting of the powers of the age to come. Um, there seems to be this radical difference. It's as if there was no regeneration before by comparison. One thing that that you draw out as you shift from an historical look now to diving into texts and treating them in depth, um, which is something I greatly appreciate, we start to see some of those dynamics. I'm wondering if we might be able to uh, start to take a few of these texts seriatim. The first is Deuteronomy 30. Verse 6, which says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Um, what are some features of this text that, that fit into this Historia and Ordo um, grid, and uh, how, how does this inform our understanding of regeneration? Obviously, they're using... Um, the language, the ritualistic or the sacramental language of the Old Testament to describe the reality that we know as regeneration, the circumcision, um, and they're applying that to the heart. So that which was signified in circumcision, God is promising to give to his people, but apparently, as the history shows, um, it wasn't given as widespread or as clearly or as effectively as it certainly would be in the day that that text is looking forward to. So God promises at some point um, he will be able to, uh, or he will, he promises, to circumcise the heart, give this power, this regenerative power, so that his people uh, will love him supremely. Mm-hmm. And then there's o- there are other ones here, like a Psalm 51. Um, what are what are some features of Psalm fifty one, or we could even talk about Jeremiah twenty four or Jeremiah thirty one? We also see companion texts there. 
Well, yeah, and what's interesting is Psalm 51 is a great example. That that is historically has been used as a another important text to substantiate regeneration because of David's experience and his prayer that God would create within him a new spirit and give him a new heart. Um, but what's interesting is that text really is, as I tried to argue, is is insufficient to be used as a text for regeneration because David's already regenerate. And the parallelism that's used there, um, the word that, that, that's used create is the word that's used in Genesis 1 to create the heavens and the earth. And it's argued that that there proves that David is asking to be regenerated. But the parallelism with restore simply suggests that he's using the strongest language he can get his hands on to plead with God to restore him. So really, it's not dealing with regeneration, it's dealing with sanctification. Dr. Wright, after dealing with Psalm 51, which I really appreciated, you move on to Jeremiah 31, uh, this famous text regarding the promise of the new covenant, and you link it back to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, uh, and you argue that both have this future perspective toward the eschatological hope of Israel uh, this is an incidental question, and it's probably just a crass Presbyterian, Pado-Baptist uh, question. But uh, it seems to me that your eschatological focus on regeneration has a backhanded argument for infant baptism. And I say that in your discussion of Deuteronomy 30, and then again in Jeremiah 31, you're arguing that there was a grand sign uh, of this eschatological hope it was being applied to infants eight days old. Uh, would you like to comment on that? Just as a, has this affected the way you speak about having infants in your church and uh, as you're going about the day-to-day life of a pastor? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. I, I, uh, I tend to see baptism because of this, and, and perhaps I share this with many others, as this sovereign, gracious work of God being signified far more than simply um, an expression of an individual's faith. Obviously, as paedo-baptists, we, we look at this as a sign of God. So the fulfillment of this eschatological hope that God revealed to the Israelites, and seeing that signified uh, within the context of the local church, it really is a, an encouraging sign and a reminder that we are in the New Covenant and in a wonderful position, redemptive historically. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Wright, would you be able to talk a little bit about uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Um, I know that there are times where this becomes a confusing, a confu- confusing issue as to what exactly the Spirit is doing in the Old Testament. Sometimes, um, well, well, when the Spirit shows up, uh, we start to automatically think uh, in terms of regeneration. Is the spirit resting upon, let's say, for instance, uh, Saul, uh, the, the work of the Holy Spirit? And that, of course, becomes a naughty issue because the spirit later on leaves Saul. And uh, Arminians grab hold of that to show that the uh, work of regeneration is not a permanent work. Uh, would you be able to talk about uh, the uh, the common uh, work of the Spirit versus the special work of the Spirit, particularly in the Old Testament. 
Sure. I, I think you, you make a helpful distinction. There is this idea of the common operations of the Spirit that are, are let my uh, Church's confessional documents speak of in terms of convicting uh, the world of its sin and bringing the sense of coming judgment, which all sorts of people experience, not just those who are ultimately regenerate. And then I think there also is this idea of the um, special work of the Spirit in outfitting a chosen instrument of God for his own purpose, like Saul, which we wouldn't say is a regenerative work, but it certainly was an anointing to prepare him for an official function, which can be taken away. And then finally, the regenerative work of the Spirit, which was operative in all of the true believers of the Old Testament, um, that's based upon the coming work of Christ, the the finished work that will be done. It's what we would talk about as proleptic. It's something that's happening because the work of Christ being accomplished is so certain that he can actually regenerate on the basis of the coming Messiah. Dr. Wright, I, I, I'm just really enjoying reading the, the tail end of your dissertation here, and if I could just sum up a, a quote here. You write, there is continuity of experience because the regeneration of both Old and New Testament believers is based upon the same work of Christ. But there's discontinuity of redemptive historical perspective since one is a proleptic pre-experience of the eschatological spirit's power, while the other is a retrospective experience of that same eschatological power of the Spirit. I think that sums up continuity and discontinuity related to the question I asked earlier very helpfully, and I just want to thank you for making it it clear. Well, thank you for for saying that, and I think for me, again, that was such, I think, a watershed discovery that Dr. Gaffin helped me to make, just seeing the, the exalted position that we occupy as New Covenant believers. Um, you know, the difference between the proleptic experience of the Old Testament believer and the eschatologically rich experience of the New Covenant believer, it's like night and day. And in, in terms of my own preaching, I think this whole discussion, uh, not just regeneration in particular, but the whole redemptive historical perspective has helped me to stay on task and to probably not as well as I'd like to, and I'm sure others would agree, but to keep us focused upon the the importance of the finished work of Christ. You know, pastorally, in, in terms of counseling, those people who are struggling with depression and low self esteem and so forth, the worst thing I think I could do was to teach them to look inward. The best thing, I believe, is to help them to look at the joy of our lives, Christ and His glory. You know, I think the whole Transfiguration episode, part, part of the significance of that is this idea that not only this is who Jesus is, but this is who the saints are going to be. We're going to share in that glory. Mm. It's mediated through His humanity. Right, right. And so with that in mind, you really have, have uh, the foundations and the and the trajectory for a, a pastoral theology here, even a practical theology. Right. I think so. I mean, you did, you did mention your preaching and that it's been influenced. How, 
Could you expo- expand upon that? How has your study of regeneration uh, broadened your view or, or, or changed your perspective on the, the task of preaching? Well, again, I think um, as much as I, I do appreciate the Ordo Salutis, it is so important, and the work that's been done historically and by men far greater than me ever, I ever will be, it, it, it's valuable. And yet I think in my small way, hopefully trying to appreciate the idea of Historia Salutis and redemptive historical significance of this doctrine in particular, that your your spiritual life as a believer is not just isolated. And not only is there a corporate aspect, you're with others, you're not alone, but there is a redemptive historical aspect. You're involved in something that is far greater than yourself, far greater than any of us, something that's going to be consummated uh, only when Christ actually comes back, the one in whom you are experiencing this wonderful new spiritual life. So in terms of preaching, it just gets me excited, first of all. I can wake up Tuesday morning ready to go. In terms of just uh, not trying to find a position for it in the personal experience, but identifying what people are going through as uh, something that was predicted by all the Old Testament prophets, and those I mentioned in particular, something that the apostles discuss with with great joy and um, insight and something that they can really appreciate as New Testament believers. Um, the other side, uh, Dr. Wright, is, you know, the scriptures uh, on uh, some points or at some times and, and on other times um, seem to talk about, uh, you know, self-examination that's proper. Is there is there a place then in light of uh, the redemptive historical element and of course, in the um, the personal exper- experience of, the, of regeneration and such, that there is a place pastorally to to call people um, to a self examination within proper uh, limitations. Absolutely, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think we're even commanded to examine ourselves. In uh, John's first letter, the whole thing is written so that we might look at ourselves and our lives and discover that we are, you know, born again. Um, but, but I do think that as we look at the evidence of God's grace in our lives, having this redemptive historical perspective helps us to see that, that this fruit is not just something that's emanating from us. It's, it's that which we find in us because we're in Christ. Um, he's our head. He's the one that's exalted. We're seated with Christ. Paul says, you know, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And that flesh I now live in, I now live by faith in Him. And so the self-examination is, is to find out what, what's this kingdom that's advancing forcefully is doing. It's overcome us. It's, it's enveloped us. It's taken us up into its arms, and it is transforming us. Hmm. It's so encouraging, um, and I really appreciate the way that you've cast this entire discussion. And I really encourage uh, the listeners to try to get a hold of this dissertation if they're able, just because of, of how helpful it is and how it helps us to think not just about the doctrine of regeneration, but 
the whole scope uh, of of salvation and how the Lord has been working among his people since uh, the very beginning. So, Dr. Wright, I do want to thank you so much for joining us. This has been such a pleasure to speak with you, and we thank you so much also for writing this and, and doing a great service to the Church. Oh, Camden, thank you so much. It's been a privilege to be on here with you and Jim and Carlton, and uh, I've enjoyed it very yeah, much. Thank you. Could you tell us a bit about your church, just uh, for the listeners that might be in the area? You're not you're not too far away from from Cleveland, correct? You're, that's right. We're uh, we're about halfway between Cleveland and Akron in Northeast Ohio. Um, it's a, a suburb, a bedroom community. Uh, we're a relatively small church, roughly 150 to 175 people. Mm. Um, been in existence about 18 years, and it's a very sweet group of people. I'm, I'm privileged to be able to serve here. Mm. Well, thanks for sharing that. Hopefully some people could stop by. We know we have some listeners there, some good friends, so good folk there. If you're ever through the area or if you live uh, near Hudson, Ohio, please please check it out. Some good faithful teaching and preaching and a good community there. But again, the dissertation is titled Regeneration and Redemptive History. It was published uh, or submitted at Westminster Theological Seminary. You can find it through the typical uh, avenues. Of course, uh, Scott's also online at scottwright.blogspot.com. Uh, you can read his blog or he posts occasionally there. Uh, Jim Cassidy is online at uh, calvary-mwell.org. There you'll find information about his church as uh, well as uh, information about their services and uh, some resources available. And Carlton, how would people get a hold of you, Carlton? Do they have to stop by your your uh, your carol at the Westminster Bookstore? They do. The, they come library? to the second floor. Uh, anybody's welcome, yeah. Stop by Carlton's Carol at the library if you want to get a hold of Carlton. Uh, of course, we're available online at reformedforum.org. There you'll find information about all of our programs as well as uh, news and, and updates about what we're doing. Uh, we want to thank everybody for listening. We hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center. <laughs>